Today's episode of El Fanboy is brought to you by you. That's right. Last week, I announced the official launch of the El Fanboy Patreon campaign, and a number of you have already contributed to the cause. So I'd just like to start things off by thanking everyone who's already pledged their support. I will continue to strive to create a thoughtful weekly show for you, filled with insights, analysis, reviews, interviews, and more in the weeks, months, and years to come. If you'd like to show your support, please visit www.patreon.com slash lfanboy or visit lfanboy.com today. But now, let's start the show. Lfanboy, episode 35. everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 35th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. So I just kind of want to start things off today with a very brief spoiler discussion about Blade Runner 2049. Uh, you know, as most of you know, I, I don't like to delve into anything spoilerish on the first episode after a film opens. So, you know, last week was it was just that. So the movie was very new, but now I think it's safe to delve into it because while much of the discussion on the film, including what I discussed last week, has been about its box office receipts, about whether or not anyone really wanted or needed this sequel, about the way of the approach that was taken for it and the running time and the this and the that, I don't think enough time is being spent on what a great movie it was and how much heft and how much meat was on the bone of that film. Um, you know, as we know, Denis Villeneuve is very well known at this point for making movies that are, you know, yes, they have a surface theme and a surface storyline, but he's really trying to say and communicate other deeper ideas. And Blade Runner 2049 is a, is a you know, the, continuing, the continuation of that sort of exploration for Mr. Villeneuve. You know, it's a true work of science fiction, an examination of real-life ideas through the lens of sort of far-fangled sci-fi trappings, you know? There's an allegory in there that's very potent about the idea of us humans creating a life form that we can control, manipulate, and kill at will. And what that says about us and what it is that even makes us human. There's also a striking sequence in the film that got me thinking about man's love of technology and how it's hindering our ability to have real relationships. With the access we all have with our smartphones to, to pornography and to all kinds of other forms of digital uh, stimulation, if you will, it's a very real thing that fewer and fewer people are experiencing real relationships nowadays. Studies have been done on the subject. You know, your average college student nowadays would rather create their own intimacy within their own lonesome confines using technology than they do actually going out and meeting someone. Mankind is growing increasingly isolated. With every generation, we're becoming more and more loners. You know, we sit at home. We're, we're, we're heading towards kind of like what happened in Ready Player One in that book, you know, in the movie now that's coming out. 
uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. If you if you've seen the trailer, I feel like that's where you know, that is a potential alternate future. We're all just going to end up in our own little apartments with a virtual reality helmet on our face, simulating what we think real life would be. Hell, it was even in the the Pixar movie Wall-E. We're moving into this exceedingly sort of isolated existence. And Blade Runner 2049 paints this portrait of Ryan Gosling's character as this loner who goes to work, then comes home to be entertained by a very vivid piece of artificial intelligence. He has a better relationship with this AI than he does with practically anyone else. And it all comes to a head in this very unique love scene that takes place. I was floored by it. Um, Essentially, he has this hologram that like lives with him. And what he does is at some point, the hologram, since it is somewhat self-aware, it decides, you know, since it can't be physical with him, it calls a hooker to his house. And it does this thing where it sort of maps itself, its hologram form over the body of the, uh, of, of the, you know, the, the, the prostitute of the lady of the night of however you want to refer to the character. She sort of maps herself over the body of the flesh and blood person. And Ryan Gosling's character seems to have a hard time trying to like buy into it and have an actual real physical experience with another woman. And it was a very sort of trippy sequence. You know, I, I you know, cause it's the mapping. It doesn't happen perfectly. It doesn't happen. You know, there are times where he looks at her face and it's the hologram of the AI that he's in love with. And sometimes he looks and it's this woman. And it, it to me, it just, it messed with my head and it really got me thinking about how, you know, nowadays it's like, I feel like guys are just not sure how to, how to reconcile the difference between what's real and what's not. And, and would I rather focus on the fantasy in my head or would I rather try to invest and get to understand a real living and breathing person in front of me? You know, to me, it was just a very sort of thoughtful, very sort of like awe-inspiring, subtle bit of, of science fiction storytelling. And I thought the film was, you know, full of stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I just I'm curious what you guys thought of, of what you guys thought of the film, of what you guys thought of that sequence, because um, actually last week I had a chance to to speak with Pedro Pascal from, uh, you know, you know him from Narcos, you know him from uh, Kingsman Golden Circle. You know, he kind of brought up not being too into the the, the quote unquote, the, the threesome thing. And honestly, you know, I looked at it totally differently. And I explained to him how I viewed it. I explained to him that I thought it was actually a very deep, very tragic scene. Um, and I, I mentioned all of the commentary of how what I took away from it. You know, and he said, you know, that he, he gets that and he saw that. But for him, they were trying to get away with both commentary and titillation. And the commentary wasn't strong enough for him. Um, yeah, he thinks maybe they might have cut something out of the, you know, out of the final cut. You see, because the movie did have to get chopped down. It was a very long movie, and it still is a long movie. But we know that they had to chop some stuff to kind of keep it, uh, you know, within reason. And he wonders if maybe you know something got cut from the scene that would have maybe made the commentary speak more than how sort of titillating the scene was. Uh, so, Mr. Pascal, I still disagree with you, buddy. 
But um, maybe I can try to get him on the show at some point. We can discuss this in front of y'all. But for those of you who did see the movie, what did you think of that scene? What did you think of the movie itself? I, I, I asked that because I really feel like lost in all of the, dis- the discussions on this movie is whether or not it was good, whether or not you, the, the ideas of it were interesting or, or thought-provoking. You know, so much of the, the discussion has been about the technical aspect of the film's performance and yada, yada, yada. I think we just got a phenomenal bit of science fiction storytelling here. And it's a shame that it's sort of falling on its face in the box office. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we just got a great movie on our hands. One that actually, in my mind, surpasses the original. So I would love if we can sort of pivot away from talking about what an underperformer the film is in the box office and more what a fucking work of art Denis Villeneuve has just given us to enjoy. Um, But all right, now let's get into the week's news. All right. Now we're going to kick things off with a very brief discussion on the weekend's box office. There weren't a lot of subplots this time, so there's not a hell of a lot to say. But here we go. Coming in at number one was Happy Death Day, which pulled in $26 million in its opening weekend. The horror film was positioned rather nicely to open on Friday the 13th in October, no less. So it's kind of like a perfect storm of things here for Blumhouse to not only have a horror movie, uh, but to also have a Friday the 13th open window for the, for you know where they can release it, and also a Blade Runner film that actually underperformed. You know, remember, prior to last week, people thought Blade Runner was going to basically carry the month of October and you know, be the big thing until Thor Ragnarok came out at the start of November. But as we know, Blade Runner is not doing that. So Happy Death Day was sort of able to pick up the slack there. Um, you know, the, the lack of interest in Blade Runner combined with the fact that it's October, Halloween's on the horizon, and they have a fairly original horror film concept in Happy Death Day, which, which sort of apes, you know, Groundhog's Day and Edge of Tomorrow with the idea of a character who keeps reliving the same day and and dying each day until they figure out how to move forward in their lives. So, you know, congratulations to Blumhouse. They did it again. They took another low-budget horror movie. They marketed it just right. They found the perfect release date for it. And the big blockbuster that came out the week before ended up not being the big blockbuster they thought it would be. So here you have this $4.8 million movie that has no one of note involved with it. Already at $31 million worldwide. Holy shit. In second place, you've got Blade Runner 2049. It took a 52.7% tumble. That's actually less of a tumble than what was originally being projected earlier in the weekend. On Friday, it looked like the film might dip almost 60%. I saw some sites reporting it looked like it would do 58% less than it did the previous week. It had a little bit of a rebound, uh, so it came in at $15.5 million, still not in very good shape. The film, which cost anywhere, depending on who you ask, from 150 to 175 mil, 
meaning it's going to have to make 300 to 350 mil just to break even, currently sits at $156.5 million worldwide. It's not looking good for this film being profitable. In third place, there was The Foreigner, which overperformed. The Foreigner is the new Jackie Chan, Pierce Brosnan movie, which is still very high on my list, and I might even go see it tonight, as a matter of fact. Um, originally, they were talking about it opening in the high single digits, maybe eight or nine million. It actually opens to 13 million bucks. And something to consider here, the Rotten Tomato score for it is 58%. And remember, just because they deem it rotten, that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. That means it's basically 50-50. Half the critics liked it, half didn't. I bring this up because it seems like if you are an action movie fan and you're into that sort of genre, like you're like, like Taken and these sort of like revenge action thrillers where you have the old grizzled hero going up against a bunch of bad guys and kicking ass and taking names... I think you're going to like The Foreigner, just based on what I've heard. Mind you, I haven't seen it yet, but, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, they say 58%. Meanwhile, audiences gave the film an A-minus cinema score. So fans are loving it. People who like action films are loving The Foreigner. So that's why it overperformed. People like seeing Jackie Chan sort of play against type. And you got Pierce Brosnan. It just, it seems like if you're an action film fan, you got to try to get your ass out to a theater soon to check out The Foreigner because it looks pretty damn good. And I hope to see it uh, this week, if not tonight, at some point this week. And I will let y'all know what I thought of it. Hell, I might even make a YouTube video review out of it. I haven't done a video review in ages at this point, And I owe you guys some video content. Coming in in fourth place, Stephen King's It is still hanging on strong with another $6 million. It only dipped 39.3%. It lost 429 screens this week, so it is slowly going to start making its way out of theaters, but I, don't, I think they're going to, you know, this thing's going to hang in there at least through October. And just to kind of put into perspective how well this goddamn movie is doing, the production budget was only $35 million. Are you sitting down? Because the worldwide haul is now $630 million. Okay? That's unfucking believable And what else is interesting is it's basically even when it comes to domestic versus foreign. That's a very unique position to be in. A lot of movies, they'll do, you know, X amount domestically and then make the bulk of their money overseas. Right now, it seems like everyone everywhere is loving this movie pretty much evenly. Domestically, it's at $314.9 million. So if you round that up, it's three fifteen, And the foreign is three fifteen point six. So they're both, it's practically a dead heat. Only 49.9% is you know th th that's how much of the uh, of the overall haul the domestic is so it's basically 50-50 so you got to hand it to the folks who who you know, the Warner Brothers and New Line they have crafted something here that is catching on like wildfire and I'm very intrigued by how the sequel eventually does even though we got to wait fucking 2 years for it you know, it's definitely going to be interesting to see if, if it can carry on that momentum and if Warner Brothers will then be tempted to then milk it. 
Because we know with horror movies, you know, there's usually no shame when it comes to turning horror movies into franchises. Remember, we got like 89 seven movies and now they're about to reboot. What I say? Seven? <laughs> the uh, Saw movies. That's what I meant. You know, we had like 89 Saw movies and now they're about to release Jigsaw and try to restart it. So it's like, you know, horror movies are constantly turned into these cash cows. You remember Paranormal Activity, how there was one of those every year. I'm very intrigued by what Warner Brothers slash New Line will do if it come, if it part two comes out in two years and is equally, you know, uh, as as beloved and as much of a winner as this first it was. Will we start seeing movies that go past the book and we start seeing you know it three and it four and it five? You know, I'm just very intrigued by that because you right now you got to think they're going to be tempted because this thing is doing un fathomably well in fifth place was the mountain between us with idris elba and kate winslet uh this is its second week in release it dropped from second place last week to fifth place this week it had a 45.5 percent drop it made 5.7 million bucks uh not a lot to say there uh it actually gained screens so it looks like fox is is trying to go after the adult demographic here and try to expand the release a little bit hoping that enough people suddenly you know uh, show an interest in it i'm a little skeptical uh then in sixth place we've got american made a film that i was you know i've been tracking for a while uh the american made movie which stars tom cruise directed by doug lyman uh, it had a production budget of 50 million. It currently sits at 112.2 million. So it, like I said last week, it is already in the profitable range. It's already in the red or actually in the black. Sorry. Um, and then you got Kingsman in seventh place with 5.3. The Lego Ninja Go movie. Jesus Christ. Nobody gives a fuck. The Lego Ninja Go movie is at 4.3 million. Um, it's not looking good for that. They're already starting to phase it out of theaters. It, it lost almost 600 screens this week. And just to sort of put into perspective, after 24 days, the original Lego movie had $209 million. After 24 days, the Lego Ninja movie, Ninja Go movie, is only at $51.5 million. That's a fourth, one-fourth, of what the Lego movie came roaring into theaters with. So listen, uh, this Lego franchise, I think, is going to have to get rethought. I think all of this spinoff nonsense is going to have to go out the window. Stick to doing proper Lego movies that center on Chris Pratt's character. Bring back Will Ferrell. Uh, bring back Lord and Miller. And make it more just a continuation of that sort of satirical uh, tone that the first one had. Don't go thinking that people just want to see Lego movies because clearly they don't. Um, and also just to sort of track what I was letting you know about Kingsman last week. Remember I said that the divide between Kingsman 1 and 2 was going to continue to grow and it has been. Through 24 days, the first Kingsman was at 98 mil and through 24 days, Kingsman 2 is at 89 mil. So it's already starting to be one of those sequels that's just, uh, you know, it's giving in to the, to the law of diminishing returns. The franchise isn't growing, it's starting to shrink. So I wonder if Fox is going to really put on ice any thoughts of giving Matthew Vaughn 
a third Kingsman movie to make. I would be very surprised if it did. Um, but now let's move on past that, shall we? There's been a bunch of stuff while we're talking about Fox that's come from Josh Brolin, who's going to appear in Fox's Deadpool 2. So he, you know, he recently did an interview with Collider, and a lot came out of that. So let's discuss it, shall we? First of all, the big question is, how many movies was he signed on to do? Josh Brolin has revealed that he has signed on for four movies. So that's going to presumably include Deadpool 2, possibly Deadpool 3, The X-Force, and who knows, maybe even a proper X-Men movie. We're going to have to figure out how this all works out in terms of how they're going to handle continuity and the interconnectivity of these X-Men mutant movies. But we know that Brolin has signed on for four movies. And he really, he sounds like he's all in on this and he's extremely excited to be a part of it. Here's what he said uh, in his, uh, one of many things he said to Collider. He said, we'll call it our limited series. This is our limited series. Going back to really fun writing. It's a great tone. Anything goes. It's a really fun stretch for me to be, to be involved in that comedic community. By the way, I love that he refers to it as our limited series. I've been saying for ages, this guy seems to be a comic book junkie. And I just love that he refers to this as the limited series because, you know, it it sheds some light on the idea that like this is its own thing. Just like in the comic book world, there are certain limited series sort of elseworld tales, sort of side stories that get explored once in a while that don't have huge ramifications on the rest of the continuity or the mythology. They are their own thing. That's how he's kind of referring to Deadpool at this point in time. Um, well, you know, he almost didn't play Cable. He, he relayed a story about how this all sort of came to be. He was all set to star in a movie called George and Tammy, a country music biopic. And it wasn't until that film fell apart at the last second that suddenly the cable opportunity landed in front of him earlier this year. So here's, here's what he said. He said, we were supposed to start May 8th with Roger Deakins shooting and all this kind of stuff. And then it fell through at the last second. And right after it fell through, this Deadpool thing came in and they said, are you interested in doing this? At first I was like, I don't know. I want to do George and Tammy. My wife, thank God, said to just read it saying, why are you even talking? Just read it. I was thinking too big about the four-picture deal. So on my phone, I remember I read it. It was so reverent and funny and hysterical that once I got through it, I was like, that's it. And I had no idea about the fan base. I had no idea what it represented. And I think we've made something really special. So I guess we got to hand it over to uh, Mr. Brolin's wife. Thanks for encouraging him to read the thing. Because it looks like he's, you know, he's going to be part of something that's pretty freaking special now. Um, he also commented about playing Thanos, by the way, which is happening at pretty much the same time. Uh, he said, you know, I had a really good time. I mean, look, I've had a blast playing Thanos. I, I mean, that's been one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. And this makes me think about the fact that, you know, he loves this stuff. And if you think about it, it's such a shame he wasn't cast as Batman in retrospect because he was one of the actors who was in the running. He was one of the actors that Zack Snyder was considering when he was going to cast Batman for the new DC Extended Universe in the, you know, in, the, in the time following Man of Steel when he revealed that they were, he would, the next film would include Batman. 
you know, Brolin was very much in that conversation. And, you know, Snyder decided to go with Affleck, making it official in August of 2013. And that freed up Brolin, who nine months later signed on to play Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And don't forget, we broke that scoop on Latino Review back in the day. But I digress. So um, while I've loved Ben Affleck as Batman so far, and I'd love to see him play the role for another 10 fucking years, we know that that's not going to happen. In fact, that little movie that's coming out on November 17th could very well be the last time we see him as the Dark Knight, which is why I think Brolin, I, I think of him because you know, the actor, he clearly loves his stuff. I've pointed that out before, you know, between Jonah Hex, Sin City 2, being part of the Avengers movies, now the Deadpool and X-Force and X-Men movies, the actors clearly got a keen interest in comic book properties. But not only that, He's also proven that he's he'd be all too happy to devote 10 years of his life to juggling two comic book characters because it's going to take a while for him to fulfill that four movie obligation, if you think about it. And he seems a OK with that. And he doesn't have the personal baggage weighing him down that Affleck sadly has. So if he'd been cast as Batman, we wouldn't have this whole annoying will he or won't he behind the scenes drama that we have with Mr. Affleck. We just have a guy who's delighted to play the role, who has no interest in the behind-the-scenes politics, who would just show up every day asked of him and put on that cowl with pride. But hey, things didn't turn out that way, so now Fox and Marvel Studios get to enjoy his talents and services while Warner Brothers figures out how to transition a new actor into the role of Batman after audiences only just started getting acquainted with Affleck in the role. Uh, it is what it is. Um, there's another actor, by the way, I've always said I would have loved to play Batman, and that's Carl Urban. He was never officially in the running, I don't think, but after seeing 2012's Dread and being a general fan of his work, I always said a Carl Urban Batman would be sensational. Nowadays, I'd just be happy to see him as Judge Dredd again, and thanks to some recent comments, that actually sounds way more feasible than anyone could have ever guessed. Remember, while Dredd, the 2012 film, was beloved by fans, the film itself didn't make a bunch of money, and a sequel simply just isn't in the cards. Meanwhile, on the periphery, we've heard that production house Rebellion plans on launching a TV series based on the Judge Dredd comic book, which will be called Judge Dredd Mega City One. It was long thought that this would be its own thing, but thanks to some recent comments from Urban himself, it sounds like this series could somewhat transform into the sequel to Dredd 2012 fans have wanted for a very long time now. We're going on five years of people hoping that that would somehow get continued and this Judge Dredd Mega City One thing may become the spiritual sequel to that. Here's why I say that. Because while out promoting his role in Thor Ragnarok, directed by Taika Waititi, Urban was asked about what it would take for him to reprise the role of Judge Dredd for the TV series or if he'd even be interested in doing so. And here's what he said. He said, 
Well, Rebellion, who owns the rights to Judge Dredd, are currently developing a television series called Mega City One, and I've had many discussions with them about my involvement, of which I am interested. And I said to them, listen, if you write a character that has a function and a purpose and contributes to the overall story, then I might be very interested in reprising that role. I certainly wouldn't want to step into it and just pay lip service to the movie. There has to be some material there that warrants further exploration of that character. So the ball's in their court. Uh, holy shit! (laughs) I hope someone at Rebellion heard that. Urban basically just said, If you write it, I will come. And if he comes, so will all of us. So please make that happen. Because Urban is clearly not above television. He starred in that failed Fox TV series, Almost Human, a couple years ago. So he's clearly cool with the commitment. And he clearly liked playing Dread. So don't screw this up. Write the man a character worthy of him. And you will be rewarded handsomely. But now let's switch gears up just a tad. Let's talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, shall we? Because I did just mention Thor Ragnarok, which is projected to open around the $100 million mark as per industry tracking data that was reported last week. Now, I'm predicting an opening around 110, 115. But moving past Ragnarok, people are already abuzz this week about the next Marvel Studios movie, Black Panther, thanks to a new trailer that was just released. I checked out the new trailer. I don't know if you have, but I was very impressed. You know, I'm loving the design for Wakanda and how vivid and immersive and sprawling it seems to be. The cast is fucking ridiculous, and my hype for the movie has definitely increased tenfold. Remember, Black Panther is not one of these characters I know anything about. And I was really only going to see it based on the trailers and based on my general curiosity on what's going on within the MCU, since they have sort of won over my faith that it's going to be at least a decent couple of hours in the theaters. Um, So, you know, this trailer totally sold me. I'm very, very excited. But I do have one gripe. The CG for the characters looks horrendous at this point. And I know there's still plenty of time to finalize it, but why the hell did they show so much of it if the CG is so unfinished? The characters look like they're made out of rubber. I used to joke about this when I saw like the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Like one and two had this, where every once in a while it looked like Spider-Man was made out of plastic, where it looked like he'd be web-slinging and the back of his head touched his ass. You know, every action shot where he's got the mask on, um, you know, uh, in this one, uh, what the hell's his name? Chadwick Boseman. In every sequence where he's in full Black Panther mode and where Michael B. Jordan's character has his mask on, it looked like a Pixar cartoon. Really, really bad. And motions, the, the motions just didn't look natural. It looked like rubbery awfulness. So here's hoping Marvel spends the next four or five months refining the hell out of the CG because that was just dog shit. But things being how they are with Marvel, even when there's two movies that are opening in a matter of months, fans are already looking past that at the bigger picture. 
You can call it the blessing and the curse of having such a massive universe. People can rarely stay in the present because they know whatever Marvel flick is opening next week is really just another step towards something else. So now there are comments from James Gunn about how Phase 4 will come together. Meanwhile, Phase 4 is like two years away. So what does Gunn, the writer-director of the first two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, have to say about Phase 4? He took to Twitter to reveal that his Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 will help kickstart a whole new story. It will launch the MCU onto its next trajectory. While Avengers 3 and 4 will essentially close many of the narrative loops and be a culmination event that signals the end of 11 years of Marvel storytelling, as Gunn puts it, uh, Avengers 4 is the end of one long story, and his third Guardians movie will reveal where the universe is going next, as it'll start, it'll be the start of a new story. It'll presumably go past the Infinity Stones, past Thanos, and way past the original staples of the MCU, being Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. We've known for a while that the future of the MCU would rest on characters like Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, and to some degree, Spider-Man. But Gunn seems to be confirming that these next two Avengers movies will essentially turn the page and put most of what we've been following so far into the rearview mirror. And the fact that it's the very cosmically oriented Guardian series that's going to reveal the next chapter in the MCU, you know, one can tend to maybe assume a few different things from that. You know, right out of the gate, Knowing that Guardians 3 is going to kickstart the next overarching story, my mind went to Galactus. Yeah, I started thinking about Galactus, Silver Surfer, maybe somehow possibly Fantastic Four. And I basically just have this hunch, this feeling that Marvel has got some big surprises up its sleeve and it's got a couple years with which to sort of make those deals and do whatever it has to do to kind of go there. Remember, for the longest time, Spider-Man could not be included, and then they kind of started planning for Spider-Man before even having the rights to him because they knew they had the clout, the money, and the, the power to ultimately make some sort of deal with Sony when they were vulnerable. So I have a sense that they're getting ready to make a big play to go for those characters which are currently housed by Fox, Remember, Fox currently has Galactus, Silver Surfer, Fantastic Four. Um, and listen, I may be totally wrong. This is just a hunch. But thinking about the fact that it's going to be Guardians that kind of helps kickstart everything, I got to feel like it's going to be another sort of cosmic villain. And when you think about cosmic Marvel villains, you think about Galactus. So, you know, we'll just have to see. And considering we're not going to get to see Guardians 3 until possibly 2020, it's going to be a good goddamn while. So let's just enjoy what's right in front of us for a little bit, okay? Can we? Please? And what is right in front of us? Justice League. So, <clears throat> what's the latest on Justice League? So, hot off the presses, there's this new Green Lantern rumor. That's right. 
there's another indication that a Green Lantern will make his presence felt in Justice League. Where did this new speculation come from? It came from a Big Bang Theory co-promotion with Warner Brothers and Justice League. They're having this thing called a Geek Stakes thing where you spin a wheel and can win some awesome Justice League prizes, including a trip for two to the premiere of the movie. But here's the juicy bit. On that wheel, alongside the cinematic logo for all of the Justice League members, is a very Snyder-looking, shall we say, logo for Green Lantern. When you combine that with the fact that the initial promo campaign for Justice League kicked off with a tagline of Unite the Seven, and everyone's now seeing this as a confirmation that Green Lantern will be the seventh member of the team, which already includes Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman, The Flash, Aquaman, and Cyborg, people are starting to wonder if, in fact, we will be seeing a surprise appearance by Green Lantern in Justice League. Now, what do I make of all this? Look, I've spoken to someone who read the script, the new script, not the old Snyder Terrio script, the one Joss Whedon took a serious pass at. And I asked this person, point blank, well, is Lantern in it or not? And their answer was not. My source says the character is mentioned in the script, just like in the trailer where we hear Steppenwolf say, no lanterns. They say that the lanterns are definitely referenced and were made aware of their general existence, but that in the official shooting script they read, there was no actual sign of an actual Green Lantern, be it Hal, John, or Kyle, or Guy Gardner, or anyone. That's not to say they might not add a post-credit type deal, even though DC seems to be against that sort of thing. But listen, there's a lot of stuff they used to be against that they're now interested in. Or there's nothing to say that they couldn't have decided to wedge in like a super secret, unscripted cameo that they're adding strictly in post to sort of keep it a surprise. But as far as I've been told, as of now, there's no actual Green Lantern in the script. So we shall see. And mind you, there was also no Green Lantern in the test screenings. So I would not hold my breath for there to be a full-on, you know, sighting of the Green Lantern, more of a passing reference to the Green Lantern Corps, and perhaps the planting of seeds for future Green Lantern goodness. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there, okay? Uh, next story on the docket for today centers on Netflix. Did you guys hear about this? Netflix is spending $8 billion on original content moving forward. Um, you know, 2018 is going to be a huge year. Uh, already, you know, we already know about a couple of high-profile things just that kind of show sort of how far they're willing to go to create quality content. You know, there's that new Will Smith series that's Netflix exclusive called Bright, which is directed by Suicide Squad's David Ayer, who is another, you know, big-time Hollywood name. And that production cost $90 million. Then you got Martin Scorsese currently filming the gangster movie The Irishman, Starring Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. It's going to be fucking insane. And that's a $46 million gangster movie. So these guys are not messing around. And according to Variety, Netflix expects to release around 
80 original films next year. 80! It, according to Variety, they range anywhere from the million dollar, you know, like a Sundance hit, like a you know the, your average sort of indie movie, all the way up to something on a much larger scale. So, look, you know, th- this shouldn't come as a total surprise. They famously gave David Fincher and Kevin Spacey $100 million to make the first season of House of Cards, and that was back in 2013. So this shouldn't come as a surprise for anyone with a pulse, but man, Netflix is serious about producing high-quality stuff, and they will pay out the ass to attract great creators. It sounds also like this move to spend more will will lead up to Netflix arriving at a high watermark when it comes to the amount of Netflix exclusives they offer. You know, right now it looks like they're going to be moving towards something where like 50% of what you see on Netflix will be Netflix-exclusive material. And that's, you know, that's beyond the 80 original films. We're also talking about the TV series. We're talking about comedy specials. We're talking about that upcoming thing with David Letterman. You know, they're really, really branching out. They're transitioning away from titles. Um, then like They're branching away from being a place to stream other people's TV and movies and moving towards being more like an HBO where you subscribe because the combination of great titles and original content is just too good to pass up. Except, unlike HBO, Netflix has the huge advantage of being very mobile, very cutting edge in terms of technology and capabilities, and they've cornered the market when it comes to the idea of releasing shows all at once and creating binge-worthy events. And while we're talking binge-worthy events, did you guys see the Stranger Things Season 2 trailer that hit a few days ago? Holy shit, that's going to rule my life when it comes out. The Duffers have really created such a vivid, layered world. I I can't wait for that. And as you guys know, Netflix has given them like a four or five season commitment. So we have a lot of stranger things to look forward to here thanks to Netflix and their investment in the Duffers and their vision. So listen, now might be a very good time to buy some Netflix stock people. All right. They are not fucking around. Um, And I mentioned David Fincher a second ago, and I just want to circle back to him for a second. He just said something, uh, I believe it was yesterday, that sheds light on why creators such as himself and Scorsese are flocking towards Netflix and away from movies these days, you know, in terms of the Hollywood system. And he takes a veiled shot at Marvel while doing it. You know, while talking about bringing his new series Mindhunter to Netflix, which I've got to see, by the way, and I will as soon as I'm done with Narco Season 3, the Oscar-nominated director said, look, there's a very large talent pool of people who are don't feel there's much for them in terms of sustenance working for Marvel. And I think that if we can make a playground for them that is thoughtful, adult, interesting, complex challenging stories and figure out ways to pull them into it, there's a chance at something that isn't lassoed and hogtied by three acts. And there's something else that doesn't have to be 22 half hour or or have a cliffhanger. I think it is an exciting time. So he's basically seems to be tired of the way studios like Marvel and Lucasfilm are redefining how to be a success in Hollywood. 
He knows they're very risk averse, very pro formula, and very against the idea that directors can create new and exciting stories. And he thinks that's what makes TV and Netflix so exciting. Because while the MCU and Star Wars may dominate Hollywood at the moment, the place you can create real art seems to be on the small screen these days. That just seems to be the way of it. And it's a trend that's been going on for years, really. I mean, I remember eight years ago or so, everyone was talking about the golden age of television. You know, there was, we were coming out of a time where the Sopranos had been this huge cultural zeitgeist phenomenon. We were at the start of the run for Breaking Bad. And there was just, there was so much high quality television it used to be that TV was the boob tube. It was where you, know, you would never catch a movie star caught dead doing a TV series because TV was considered sort of low rent. But something has happened in these last 15 years or so where you know it is now the, the place to find all the best talent. And I remember speaking to my aunt about this back in the day and, and just kind of doing my own research on it, which led me to realize that the studios have significantly cut down how many films they release per year. If you look at the way it used to be, you know, studios would put out a ton of movies. You know, a a studio like a Warner Brothers or whatever would put out like 10 or 12 movies a year. Nowadays, they make like three or four a year and they put all of their effort into making sure those are box office hits. And what that has led to is you have this huge dearth of directors, writers, actors who are dying for work and who want to create something new and exciting that can't seem to get those green lights from the big studios. And that's where TV suddenly goes, hey, well, why don't you come here? We may not pay you as much, but we'll give you some creative control over what you're doing. You'll get all the time in the world to explore all your ideas. You can do gritty, thought-provoking work, which Hollywood seems to be more and more sort of not so much into as they're more into safe bets. So, you know, this golden age of television has been going on for a while. And now that's, you know, it's starting to extend itself towards Netflix and streaming services. So it really seems like more and more, even if you, if you look at like the way Blade Runner was just somewhat rejected, it seems like we're going to be getting more and more safe movies. When you go to the movies, you're going to see things that have been tested and focus grouped that are there for maximum wide, you know, uh, wide appeal. But you're going to find the more interesting, cutting edge, avant-garde stuff on TV. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't studios that are willing to take risks. You know, there is one in particular that seems hell bent on thinking outside of the box, and that is Fox. Like we spoke about earlier, you know, Deadpool was this rare special thing. And Josh Brolin's so excited to be a part of it because it's so sort of subversive and different. Logan, as many of you know, moved me to tears. And I think it's one of the finest movies in any genre that's come out in years. And now this week, they've released the trailer, the first trailer for The New Mutants. And once again, they seem willing to go where safer studios won't. They're making character-driven entertainment for adults. They're making films that literally redefine what we think about the superhero slash comic book genre. Did you guys get a chance to see the new Mutants trailer? Holy shit. Meanwhile, I may not even see it. (laughs) 
Like I don't, you know, I've never read the books. And unlike even some of these, like, like I, I, when it comes to Marvel, I reference Black Panther or Captain Marvel. Unlike them, I don't even know who the new mutants are. Uh, you know, even growing up, I had an, uh, somewhat of a knowledge that Captain Marvel and Black Panther existed. New mutants, I don't know dick about. For me, it's almost like when Guardians of the Galaxy was announced. I'm like, what the hell is this? So, you know, I might not even really go see this unless there's something about it that really pulls me in. The reviews are amazing and there's a lot of buzz around it. But regardless of my own personal interest or lack thereof in the property, you've got to hand it to the movie itself. You know, the, the trailer itself, the way that it seems to be shot, though, the tone they're going for. You know, I'm just floored by a major studio willing to spin this whole thing on its head. You know, while while Marvel Studios pays lip service to the idea that each of their films is its own genre, Fox is the studio that's actually doing that. You know, we've already covered Deadpool was its own thing. You can't categorize it like anything else that's come before it. Logan was like a modern day Western with the old gunslinger laying down his claws. When they said a few weeks ago that New Mutants was going to be like a horror movie, I was very skeptical. I rolled my eyes like, all right, so it's going to be your typical X-Men movie. But, you know, they'll make it a little spooky. They'll, they'll add some horror trappings. But now, based on that trailer, it's absolutely a horror film. Like Josh Boone and Fox have committed to that. They made a horror movie that uses the X-Men property. So now when they say that Channing Tatum's Gambit movie is going to be in the heist film genre, I know better than to doubt them. It really will probably be a low-down, dirty heist movie about a criminal mutant. That's exciting stuff. Marvel Studios once claimed Ant-Man would be a heist movie. Remember that? Well, let's be real. Just because he takes part in a heist or two during the movie doesn't make it a heist movie. It didn't live up to that genre in tone or execution. It was just another lightweight Marvel action comedy, which is fine. But stop pretending that your movies are all different. Fox's upcoming movies are all very different. So, New Mutants, man. Jesus. And remember, DC, right? Warner Brothers and DC, they want to go that route also. While Warner Brothers initially kicked off their shared DC universe with the idea of all the films being very interconnected, they realized they can't do that while still giving each movie and each filmmaker some real space to explore. So now, moving forward, rather than having things be as closely entwined as they were for the first three DC movies, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, they're going to move each of their properties onto their own little islands and allow directors like James Wan and Matt Reeves to flex their creative muscles. And you know who's, going to, who's a big fan of that, by the way? Kevin Smith. Um, the the big-time DC supporter and general comic book junkie and professional fanboy guru extraordinaire recently sounded off on DC's intention to loosen up the connectivity of its shared universe. While discussing the latest revelations that came from that Vulture report about what, you know, what uh, Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson want to do with the, the DC Extended Universe, here's what Kevin said. <clears throat> he said... I'm a purist, so I love when things are interconnected as well. But 
I grew up in an era where there was a Batman movie. There was a Superman movie. And they didn't really reference each other. One time, George Clooney was like, this is why Superman works alone. And we got our nipples hard. We were like, ah, they know each other. So now we live in a world where these movies can cross over and stuff. I'm happy to get the ones that can, but if they don't cross them over, that's totally okay with me. As long as they're good, as long as they try. And think about, some people get kind of crappy, like, come on, man, these cats, they don't know comic books. Comic books and characters have been handed to so many creators over the years. You never know what you're going to get in the hands of any particular person. I still get crap for making Batman pee his pants in a Batman book once, which is, you know, kind of reducing it to something it wasn't. But still, regardless, you got to respect that a creator can come in, maybe take that character to a place that you've never seen that character be taken. And I gotta imagine, if Martin Scorsese jumps onto a Batman movie, we're gonna see some shit. Not bad shit, the good shit that we all dream about. Goodfellas in a DC Universe movie? I'm there. Take all my money. So that's Kevin Smith's sort of take on the whole loosened connectivity uh, within the DC Extended Universe. Obviously, he's also referencing that... Martin Scorsese produced film, the, that Joker sort of standalone movie that won't take place within the DCEU that could possibly somehow maybe star uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as the Joker. You know, and he's got a point. If they do all that, take all of our money. It is a very interesting idea. And at this point, you know, we're going to have to see how it all plays out. The loose connectivity and the giving the filmmakers a chance to explore the characters seems to be working very well for Fox at this point. Let's see if Warner Brothers can make it work. They're definitely hiring some high, high caliber talent to create these films. Um, and while we're talking about things that you know, I, I'm just going to throw all of my money at, Star Wars The Last Jedi still has tongues wagging after that very dynamic trailer they released last week. Um, people everywhere are still discussing the very real possibility that Luke Skywalker will end up the villain of the piece. Aside from what I discussed on last week's show about Luke's apparent fear and how that opens up a major gateway for him to go to the dark side, fans have been dissecting the hell out of that poster. Like I also said last week, people are making a lot out of Luke's positioning on the poster. His giant hooded head is positioned in much the same way as Darth Vader's head used to be on the posters. And it's also the way Kylo Ren was positioned in the Force Awakens poster, where he's looming large in the background. That positioning seems reserved for the villain of the movie when it comes to Star Wars. And Mark Hamill, ever the Joker that he is posted on his Twitter account that the villains are always looming at the back until they get the chance to loom on the front of a box of Kylo Crunch. Uh, he's making a joke about the fact that Kylo Ren is front and center on a box of Star Wars cereal. And he posted a picture of the, uh, like a side-by-side -side of Star Wars posters with the Star Wars cereal with Kylo Ren on it. You know, but look, he's clearly very aware of all of the chatter that Luke may be the big bad. And he's starting to have some fun with that. So make of that what you will. But <clears throat> to that, I'd like to pose a question. Yes, Darth Vader was in many ways the villain of the original trilogy. 
But wasn't he also the hero? You know, what was the takeaway from all of the first six episodes of Star Wars? As much as it was about the rise and fall of Vader slash Anakin Skywalker, ultimately, it was a story of redemption and forgiveness, where a good man goes bad, then returns to the light before it's too late. So those of you drawing Vader parallels for Luke, keep that in mind. You can't be selective here. Vader was the villain, but he was also arguably the biggest hero of the previous Star Wars episodes. So just keep that in mind when we're discussing the potential parallels and similarities between Luke and Darth Vader. And who knows, the storytellers could take some very interesting routes with this. I've brought up time and time again that Abrams was very intrigued by the idea of reshaping how we think of Luke Skywalker. When Kathleen Kennedy lured him into the job to take on The Force Awakens, she did so with the question, who is Luke Skywalker? So that means that Kathleen Kennedy, Lucasfilm, J.J. Abrams, they are very much open to the idea of going beyond what we think of him. So who knows? He could end up the villain. He could end up being like Vader, where he's a villain who then finds the light. Or what if he never returns? What if he really does go off the deep end? You know, there, there's so many ways they can go with it. So I'm, I'm very excited. I'm curious to see where they go. Of course, there's the kid in me that's like, no, Luke is my hero. Don't fuck with him. But you know what? You know, as long as the execution is good, I'm willing to figure, you know, I'm willing to, to see where they go with this. Um, and also, while we're talking Star Wars, there is some breaking news, ladies and gents. Have you heard? The standalone Han Solo movie, which I don't think anyone with half a brain really wants to happen at all. Uh, it recently wrapped production. And Star Wars, the official Star Wars account, has released what the film will be called at last. And it's nothing special, just like the movie itself. <laughs> uh, the title is Solo, A Star Wars Story. Very blah, very, oh, okay. You know, I was secretly hoping for something that felt more like the old 1930s and 40s serials that George Lucas was inspired by something called like, you know, uh, Smuggler's Run or something like that. You know, Smuggler's Run, uh, a Han Solo story. Something a little more like attention grabbing, but just Solo, a Star Wars story. Like that's that's the best you could come up with. So listen, I'm, I, I've said it time and time again, but this is going to be the first Star Wars movie that I have like contempt for. As it arrives, it seems totally unnecessary. I don't want to see a lot of these things explained that they're going to be explaining. I don't need to see how he got the Millennium Falcon. I don't need to know anything about his relationship with Lando Calrissian that took place prior to Empire Strikes Back. I liked the mystery of their dynamic in Empire Strikes Back. You couldn't tell if they were friends or foes or we could trust Lando or not. And I'm scared to death that this movie is going to make it very clear where they stand together. And I'm just, I'm not interested. This is really, I hate to say it, but this is the first Star Wars movie that I could totally take or leave. But now, as we uh, kind of hit the home stretch on this 35th episode of El Fanboy, I want to just uh, offer a 
quick update. Uh, everyone, you should be checking out lfanboy.com. I've up, made some updates to the site itself and the layout. I've also got the details for the official Justice League watch party taking place here in Queens on opening night, November 17th. I've already gotten some RSVPs. And as soon as those tickets go on sale, I'll be buying tickets for everyone who uh, who RSVPs and sends me the money via PayPal. Uh, for those of you who've already RSVP'd and are waiting for your follow-up instructions, I'm just waiting for a few more people to chime in, and then I'll get through to all of you. But if uh, I don't get anything by Wednesday, then I'll, I'll kind of send around the first round of details. Uh, for anyone interested, we're going to be looking for whatever showtime is closest to 9 o'clock. Uh, you know, hopefully there is one that's around 9 or 9.30 right now. There's no way of knowing because tickets are not on sale yet. And on that front, it looks like we may have to wait all the way until October 30th. Um, you know, Fandango released a statement that Justice League tickets will go on sale at the end of October. And that jives with old rumors, or I shouldn't say that old, but by, you know, their last week's rumors that Justice League would be going on sale on October 30th for its November 17th release. So until that point, I won't know exactly what time the showing will be. But uh, right now, the tentative plan is for us to meet up at the Hooters next door to the AMC Fresh Meadows Theater around 7, 730 for, you know, beer and wings and, and pre-gaming prior to the movie. Then seeing the movie, hopefully uh, there's a nine o'clock or so showing. We may end up having to go later. Um, you know, it all depends on what show times are available and that's that. Um, it is sort of surprising, isn't it? That they're not putting tickets on sale until 17 days before the movie comes out, but I'm going to try not to read too much into that. I'm very sort of intrigued how the promotion for this film is going to go in general. Um, you know, like I said, I have no doubts or questions, uh, regarding Warner brothers strategy. Remember with Warner Brothers, they did a very, with a Wonder Woman, they did a thing where like they saved the big final blitz for those final weeks leading up to the movie's release. That up until about a month before the movie came out, everyone was going, where's all the Wonder Woman hype? So they seem to be doing that again. So I'm not questioning that so much as the logistics of the promotions for the film, because I don't know if you guys have been following, but... This Harvey Weinstein story seems to be casting a negative cloud over just about everything in Hollywood right now, where everyone's on high alert for any allegations of sexual assault or sexual harassment, and all kinds of skeletons are coming out of all kinds of closets. And late last week, there was this big brouhaha about Ben Affleck being accused of touching a woman inappropriately during an MTV TRL appearance, and then him addressing that on Twitter, apologizing for being inappropriate with, uh, I believe her name was um, Hillary. I don't have it on me right now. And then there was uh, also Jason Momoa. You know, a few years back, he made a, a, a sort of tasteless joke at a comic con about what it is he loves about uh, being on game of thrones or what it is he loved about being on game of thrones. And he said it was the fact that he gets to rape beautiful women. And uh, he had to apologize for that, which he had already done, mind you back then. 
And then people are also digging into like, you know, uh, Jeremy Renner and Chris Evans because they made a joke once in a, during a, a press junket interview where they were asking about how Black Widow, you know, seems to you know, have a lot of different love interests in these Marvel movies. And Jeremy Renner made a, an, a, a crappy joke about, oh, well, she's a slut, you know, and Chris Evans lost it laughing and, and kind of called her a whore. But then they realized the next day, probably immediately, but they, they, they apologized the next day for the remark, you know, that they didn't mean anything by it. They were just having some fun talking about a, fi- you know, fictional character, but they felt bad that, you know, for anyone who was offended by that. And in general, there's just a lot of this. Everyone seems to be combing and dissecting every little word, every little thing that any actor has ever done bad. Because now like the, there's all kinds of pitchforks and torches coming for Hollywood. Everyone wants to rail against everyone in Hollywood. Apparently, everyone's a sleazeball. Everyone's a predator. Everyone's an abuser. Um, you know, I'm, it's hard right now if you're someone like me who loves this industry. And, you know, I think of these people, I think of all of this, you know, this entire industry as, you know, they're myth makers, they're magic creators. And they create the art form that has gotten through many a dark time in my life. So it's hard for me to try to think of everyone as some sort of giant scumbag. And listen, I'm, I'm not going to doubt that there are a lot of horrible people there. And it seems like with every day, you learn about someone else doing something awful. And it's, just, it's a hard time to be a lover of the film industry right now. But, um, and also, it's, hard, it's a hard time to be a fan. Everything has become so hateful and so divisive. That's why I've, I've kind of been radio silent on Twitter since Friday. I, I deleted the app from my phone. I, I replied to a couple of tweets on the desktop version of Twitter over the weekend while I was at work. But I kind of had to disconnect. It's getting really toxic out there. Uh, amongst fans, amongst fandoms, people somehow found a way to turn the Ben Affleck story into a Marvel versus DC thing. I'm like, really? What the fuck are we doing here? Is this is this what does everything boil down to? Marvel is the best, or DC is the best, or like I don't understand. Why the fuck can't anyone just be rational and have just a regular goddamn conversation anymore without calling someone a name and, and, and without trying to get like personal and vindictive and cruel and try to bring in petty things that don't matter into conversations that are much more important than movies and comic book characters. I just, I'm, it's, it's getting really kind of hairy uh, on social media lately with all this stuff. I'm hoping that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to be optimistic. I hope a lot of this blows over. I hope that Weinstein gets dealt with and it looks like he is. I hope that whoever else has been doing fucked up things gets ousted and gets what's coming to them. And I hope that the industry as it's, uh, you know, uh, on its own just cleans up its act and that we can get back to focusing on, you know, on the art of filmmaking and get back to just, you know, this is supposed to be our escape. Movies, Hollywood, TV shows, these are supposed to be our escape from the perils and pitfalls of real life. And right now, shit's just gotten way too real. So <clears throat> with regard to Justice League and the promotion, I bring all this up. Because now there's questions as to whether or not Ben Affleck will even participate in the promoting of the movie. 
if you can believe that. Because if you think about it, with this recent uptick in controversy now, uh, people are going to be asking him about that instead of the movies. And suddenly now he becomes a liability. Having him on the promotional trail now means that the interviews are, the, the, the interviewers and the journalists are going to be looking more for some sort of crazy you know, quote from him about all this controversy instead of letting him just hype the movie up. So now it looks like Warner Brothers and co, they're trying to figure out, do we put Ben Affleck out there to promote this thing? Meanwhile, you've also got Jason Momoa, who I mentioned already, is having a little bit of a backlash from like five-year-old comments he made about Game of Thrones. You have the fact that Zack Snyder, while still technically the director of the movie, you know, how is he going to promote it at this point since he didn't oversee the final cut? I think he will. But remember, he's already said that he disconnected from the movie six months ago. So getting him in to talk about it now when he's already publicly said he's had nothing to do with it for the last six months is like, all right, that's going to be a weird thing. So I feel like they're going to have to basically put all their eggs in the Gal Gadot, uh, Ezra Miller, Ray Fisher basket and let those three sell the hell out of Justice League because right now it seems like the Affleck brand is toxic. The Momoa brand is sort of up in the air. And Zack Snyder's involvement is sort of questionable at best. So it's going to be a sort of fascinating subplot to see how they handle promoting this film and ducking under the Weinstein controversy and of, of, of skeletons and closets and awful uh, off-colored behavior. Um, but just sort of wrap up that. Looks like Justice League tickets will finally go on sale on October 30th. Um, in terms of what I've been ingesting this past week in entertainment, really not much. I finally have sunk my teeth into Narcos Season 3, and holy shit, is that show really good. Remember, I had my reservations because after Season 2, I found out all the different creative Hollywood liberties the production team has taken with that series, I, I always kind of thought of it more of like a, a docudrama, sort of really sort of chronicling what actually happened and not embellishing that much. I guess that was naive of me. But when I found out that they were inventing whole characters and tweaking the real timeline just to make it a more entertaining TV show, I was very sort of <clears throat> apprehensive about season three. But I'm in, now I'm like, I'm in and I'm so invested. I'm about five episodes into season three and I might finish this thing within the next two days because I'm, I just can't seem to get enough of it right now. Um, podcast, you know, I finished up Dirty John last week, which was my podcast recommendation. Uh, I'm still listening to Case File, Sword and Scale. I've added onto my lineup the Norm McDonald show. Uh, if you like stand up, and you like interesting conversations with actors and comedians that you admire, Norm MacDonald has a pretty damn good podcast that I didn't even know existed until a week ago, so I've just been sort of catching up. The Jim Carrey episode is very interesting because I love Jim, <clears throat> but man, he's on a whole other plane of existence lately. And that interview, that conversation really sort of hits that point home that Jim is uh, on another wavelength these days. Um my movie referral for the week is Suicide Kings. If you've ever seen it, uh, I'm sure you can speak to it. If you haven't, I feel like that's most of you. Suicide Kings is an interesting movie. 
in that it's got a pretty damn good cast. You've got Christopher Walken. You've got Dennis Leary. You know, you, you've got some good talent in the movie. Um, and it almost kind of has like a gritty sort of like Tarantino gangster vibe to it. But it just never really took off. So I would strongly recommend if you haven't seen Suicide Kings, give it a shot. It's a good sort of dark, uh, darkly humorous uh, gangster movie. It takes place over the course of one night where these sort of hapless, uh, wealthy college kids kidnap a well-known gangster played by Christopher Walken. And I won't spoil anything else about the twists and turns. It all takes place over the course of one long night. So Suicide Kings is this week's referral. And that's it, everyone. If you have a chance, visit www.patreon.com slash lfanboy or lfanboy.com to find out how you can contribute to lfanboy. Uh, can I say that fucking phrase one more time? Lfanboy, lfanboy, lfanboy. Um, also, please, if you have not yet, jump on iTunes and give me a five-star review that every little bit helps. And you can follow me on the Twitter at I underscore am underscore MFR. I may not be on Twitter as much anymore, but I will be around. And I'm always happy to speak to you guys. All right. So hope all is well. And until next week, adios.